word. I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Tempe, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in the state and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Welcome to National Poetry Month. As the coronavirus pandemic continues to shutter brick-and-mortar performance spaces, poets and spoken word artists continue to look to technology to stay in contact with audiences. A lot of us have been sharing through social media, posting it on our YouTube channels and trying to keep that spirit alive, but it's not the same. That often means finding ways to connect to readers as booksellers aren't classified as essential businesses. It's actually easier in the past couple of weeks to find readers because there were so many new Facebook groups springing up for people to share poetry. As we shine a virtual spotlight on poetry this month, we begin at home with friend to the show, Rosemary Dombrowski. She's the Phoenix Poet Laureate, and along with other colleagues at ASU and the community, she rebooted an iconic and historic newspaper called The Revolution. That paper was first published by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony in January 1868, and Rosemary and her colleagues brought it back last summer. I had a chance to talk via Skype recently and began by asking Rosemary about her own battle with the coronavirus. I feel pretty good now. Uh, I was sick for about 20, 22 days, and it ended feeling like a mild cold. Um, For the first few days, it was a low-grade fever off and on. Um, Once it reached its peak, I felt like I had maybe a mild flu. I don't usually get the flu, so I don't really have a great frame of reference. But, you know, I'd have to lay down for a couple hours a day, and then I'd be able to get back up and do some more work. Wow, that's rough. Well, I'm glad to be talking to you, and we are actually taping this interview in late March. It seems to me like you've been dealing with this since the beginning of March almost. My son fell ill on President's Day, I remember, because he was home from school, and he was bedridden for five days, and he didn't eat for two of those days. Now, he has nonverbal autism and severe intellectual disabilities. So he wasn't able to clearly convey his symptoms to me. I just know that he brings home some kind of virus from school every couple years, usually has a cough with it, but I've never seen him not eat for two days. He's a very tall teenage boy, so that's unlike him. And we were all a little concerned, but you know, I ultimately just thought, well, it's the same kind of virus he gets every year started off with kind of a choky, gagging-sounded dry cough. Uh, The cough got a little bit worse, but he was better in, I would say, seven days. And then shortly thereafter, I got the low-grade fever. (laughs) So, you know, I'm really concerned that we might have had it. And I, I guess there's no reason to be concerned now if we did because we survived thank the universe that it seems like both of you are pulling through this at at any rate. And then like a lot of us, you are telecommuting. Are you also stir crazy like many of us? I wouldn't exactly call it stir crazy, but (laughs) I would say I feel the fog of depression from time to time throughout the day. It's been difficult. I work with people. I work in the community. 
um, rubbing elbows is kind of my business. <laughs> so it's certainly my passion. It's been difficult to be isolated. I don't know that I would call myself stir crazy, but it, it certainly weighs heavily on my heart. Yeah, absolutely. And as the city's Poet Laureate, as you say, rubbing elbows is really important. I want to talk a little bit about how that's affected the community here in just a bit. But firstly, we talked to you during last season about a little bit after the time that you had relaunched the revolution, the historic newspaper from Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. And it's been going now for several months online. How are contributions going for that? We had quite a few contributions, I would say from July through December. Uh, I took a break early in the year from running the ads. Typically, I'll put out a call for submissions in new pages or, you know, other platforms where creative writers and writers tend to go to look for calls. And I did just post a call in new pages that's going to run for two months. So hopefully, given that so many writers are home looking for uh, venues for publication right now, and I'm guessing a lot of them are angry, a lot of them are inflamed, a lot of them want to talk about the state of things. And so I'm hoping the revolution call catches their eye and that we're flooded with submissions over the next few months. Well, of course, April is National Poetry Month, which is another reason why we wanted to welcome you back. And speaking of the website, I know that this poem was posted actually in late December, but it it seems prophetic, and it's called Close to the Heart, Learning the Chinese Characters. Mm, Right. If I mispronounce the name of the poet, please correct me, Wan Chengming. That sounds beautiful. I I don't know how to pronounce the characters, Tom, so you try your best, and I certainly won't criticize you. I'm just basically going to read it. It's, It's kind of in a list, and people can go to the website at therevolutionrelaunch.com to see this. Anger influxes when slavery eclipses the heart. Worry thickens as autumn sits high on the heart. Depression settles when the heart is shut behind a door. Forgetting happens when there's death on the heart. To tolerate is to bear a knife above your heart. Thought is what takes place in the field of the heart. Meaning is defined as a sound reverberating inside the heart. And what really struck me about that poem, of course, was that it has nothing to do with coronavirus, but just this constant trope of coming back to what I think we all can use some of at this stage of the game, which is a big heart. When that poem came in, it dovetailed so nicely with what the editors were already grappling with. And I had asked them because we were coming to the close of 2019 and our first five months of existence to think about what our collective goals were for the upcoming year and how we as editors who are kind of steering this ship called the Revolution Relaunch might want to redefine some critical terms like hope and justice and activism in 2020. Right. And so in the age of COVID-19, what does hope, justice, and activism look like? 
<laughs> That's a great question. Um, Rashad Thomas and I were just talking about what we were going to do for this month for the April issue. And we decided to do another editorial collage while we're waiting for the national submissions to come in. And we thought we would grapple with revolutionary love and revolutionary healing this time. So uh, those are the terms that I've been thinking about for the last 24 hours or so. But let me go back to hope and justice and activism for a second. I think that we're going to be in this position that we're in right now for quite a while, a lot longer than we could have been prepared for and a lot longer than we want to be in this position of social isolation and fear and, um, you know, almost liminality. I'm, I'm not really sure how I'm supposed to be moving through the world right now. I'm not really sure what kind of work I'm supposed to be doing. I'm a social justice activist on the ground. Um, I work with people and I work with paper. So I'm kind of at a loss as to how I am supposed to progress. How am I supposed to continue my mission when I'm used to being out on the Capitol lawn or I'm used to being at a community event or I'm used to being at something affiliated with Arizona Humanities or the Piper Center So, or I'm used to being on Roosevelt Row. I, I don't know how to effectively be an activist using social media because that's not my medium. So I think I'm going to be looking to other people. I'm going to be looking to other technologies. Uh, you know, I have to be working as part of a group right now because I don't think that this is my forte. So I think that's what activism is going to look like for me during the age of COVID. I think hope comes into play whenever I think about, quote unquote, the other side. Um, a lot of things are going to burn to the ground. But I keep returning to that Phoenix metaphor, <laughs> the rising from the ash on the other side. I mean, I know it. It has to be vastly better. <laughs> yeah, we are all certainly hoping that it gets vastly better and quick. But the reality of things, as it stands for some time, performance spaces are dark. Even the smallest of cafes where people might put out a tip jar and read poetry for some extra grocery money are not a reality and may not be for a long time to come. You intimated that artists that you have seen sort of in your own sphere of influence are really becoming influential kind of, you know, it's kind of, um, I don't know, sort of like a, a rubber band almost. Um, you know, they're they're influencing you. They're teaching you now. And I've talked to so many folks who are, you know, kind of gigifying their art, if you will, and using technology, whether that's collaboratively or maybe instead of reading, for instance, they might shoot something and put it up on YouTube. What are you running into? And what are you hearing from fellow creatives? I think there are plenty of ways to engage. It's not the same doesn't have the same dynamism. It doesn't have the same, you know, sort of human component. There's no, there's no touch. There's, you know, the tactility of it, I guess, is, is what I'm missing. But I certainly think there are enough platforms to keep artists motivated and sharp and maybe producing work that other people um, can connect with and that will resonate with other people. I, I guess what I'm most interested in, though, is pooling our collective strength on the other side of the crisis. 
I think that's what I keep looking toward. I think I really am saving some of my energy for what it's going to look like when we have to return to the streets and some of our galleries and some of our coffee shops and some of our small restaurants are closed. Where are our performance spaces going to be? Where are, where are the new spaces where we're going to create art? How are we going to help rebuild the fractured community? I think there are a lot of interesting ways that we could do that. And I think the city is going to be ripe for it. I think the citizens are going to be ripe for it. I don't think that we're going to have a first Friday on the other side of COVID that's poorly attended is what I'm saying. I think people are realizing now how much they value community and how much they need it in their lives. And I want to be there to ignite the community on the other side. Do you happen to have a poem that you might have written in the last couple of weeks? Uh, It doesn't necessarily have to be about coronavirus, but do you have something handy that you could share with our audience? I do have a lot. I, you know, I was working on this Emily Dickinson project for months. (laughs) I've been spending most of my evenings prior to coronavirus, I'd say like at least five months, maybe (laughs) channeling Emily Dickinson. That's been my (laughs) nightly project. So I I don't want to say that the transition out of Dickinson has been difficult because honestly, when this hit, I, I couldn't touch Dickinson anymore. I've only read, you know, one or two Dickinson poems online since this started. Emily is so prescient as well. You know, she always saw the the larger crisis looming on the horizon. (laughs) She's she's so sagacious and, and I probably should be reading her. But I felt like a balloon that someone had stuck a pin into when this started. And for some reason, I I guess my relationship with Dickinson has also something to do with my, you know, my strength of mind. What I felt like was, uh, you know, my ability as a writer to channel really important uh, poetic information from the 19th century and translate it for the 21st century. I I think I just felt deflated. I don't think that I felt like I had the acumen or um, sort of the spiritual powers to do that anymore. So that's a long way of saying all I've written is apocalypse poetry. That's really all I've written <laughs> since this began. And I'll start with a, a kind of funny, simple one here called There's Barely Anybody Out There. It's not funny. It's one of those that you might laugh at, but then you'll maybe cry after the laughter. You go on a quarantine bike ride. God, how you miss the fool in you, the lip-syncing you, the you that used to braid your hair and wear false lashes. You text your virtual lover and reminisce about the time before the stockpiling began. You send him a close-up of your panties. You take a picture of the dirt, the basket of your bike sagging under the weight of your water bottle. It's startling what you can see on the precipice of disaster. In your dream, you discover a mandible with three molars still attached. You take a photo and share it on Facebook, and it's a good distraction for a while. You wonder how long you'll allow yourself to believe it was a jackalope that possessed magical powers, which reminds you of the year you kept finding dead birds in the yard, which was the year you started heeding the signs, and things got worse before they got better. You look out the window with your three cats and you see one plane in the sky. They look wide-eyed and concerned and you hear yourself saying, it's okay, there's nothing to be afraid of. There's barely anybody out there. 
Wow, that is uh, quite an encapsulation of what I think many people are dealing with right now. You foregrounded that poem talking about Emily Dickinson being patient at this stage. And, you know, just in terms of a person who was pretty well known for sequestering herself quite a bit of her life, I feel like even though there were biographical things that you couldn't touch and maybe an anthology with her work in it, you kind of channeled her. Wow, that's thank you. Thank you. A friend of mine sent me an Emily Dickinson meme a couple weeks ago. because there is an Emily Dickinson meme going around right now, not surprisingly, about how Emily stayed inside and read books and wrote poems. (laughs) And I thought, yeah, that does sound like me. I I do spend most of my nights, my late nights, staying in and reading and writing, but, and I still have that time. I still have that space, but I've always carved out that space. You know, it's my days It's that interaction, that constant interaction with members of the community, with students of all ages, uh, always talking about poetry and the power inherent in the container of a poem. That's what I miss. That's what I miss. And I think that's what the world really needs right now. Rosemary Dombrowski, I want to thank you so much for coming back to Word and talking to us about so many things that are important. Uh, Of course, the revolution, relaunch.com is the website to go to. And we can't thank you enough for spending some time with us. Tom, thank you so much for having me. This might be my only big talk of Poetry Month, so I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. You can find links to Rosemary Dombrowski's work on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. KJZZ is the one source that connects you to the state and the world. It's your connection to fact-based reporting and analysis of all the pressing issues of the day. Join the more than 24,000 KJZZ members in supporting every story and every conversation. Listen and support at KJZZ.org. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ. With true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world, Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moth stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ. KJZZ's car donation program accepts all types of vehicles to support the programs you rely on. Whether it's a boat, car, truck, or RV, donating is easy and a great way to support your public radio station. Details at cars.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. John Roach is a poet living in Placitas, New Mexico, and is the partner of Jules Nyquist, whom we featured last month. I had a chance to catch up with John via Skype recently and began by asking how he's celebrating National Poetry Month virtually. I just uh, zoomed in to a uh, poetry society meeting up in Rochester, New York, the Just Poets group, and there were about 22 people, something like that, on, and it, it actually went very smoothly. One thing that was nice is they had a moderator and she kind of took everybody through the various steps, and we got some tips we may use in our 
our workshops and things. Yeah, I want to talk to you a little bit about that. All of us are getting, I think, as many of us as can telecommuters still trying to get used to that idea of being out of the office, maybe depending on our age or whatnot. I know it's been kind of difficult for me, but when it comes to the the creative sphere, this, I think, is is really kind of a unique challenge for many poets. It is, yeah. Uh, although, of course, many poets now have more time to write, <laughs> right. which is a good thing. We're so used to, uh, and I guess reliant on face to face, and and um, being in a space, in a physical space with other poets through readings, workshops, and and open mics. That it is an adjustment, certainly. Obviously, not everybody writes to read their material in front of an audience, but there's definitely a missing connection there, as you allude to. You are in Placitas, New Mexico, and we talked to Jules Nyquist, who also runs Poetry Playhouse, last month. And so one of the things that she mentioned was that you guys had a scheduled live reading at one of the breweries, and you moved that uh, to virtual at the end of last month. And so I just wondered how that actually went. So we had the last... uh actual reading at the brewery in February and uh, uh, obviously March the end of March was not it was not going to work the governor had shut down all the bars and restaurants except for takeout so we decided to try to do it on zoom in it uh, last week and it went very well I think we had about 15 open mic readers plus the two featured poets uh, Debbie Brody from Santa Fe and Bill Nevins from Albuquerque. We didn't get quite as many people as we would in the live event. I think people, some people are still getting used to the online, but we think we probably had about 25 people or so in attendance. So, so not bad for the first time. Well, maybe, you know, in terms of the, the reason why you also didn't get people was lack of beer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You have to bring your own. Yeah, well, I'm sure that's no problem for for some folks these days. I'm also curious about your background as a writer and how you you sort of balance that with your day job. My day job doesn't exist, <laughs> or I'm retired now um, after 40 years of teaching at universities, and um, most recently 20 years up in Rochester, New York at Rochester Institute of Technology. I was teaching English and often creative writing and, and poetry literature classes. I've, you know, been involved with poetry, well, for many, many decades, both Irish poetry and American poetry, especially Walt Whitman and also poetry from the Beat and Black Mountain periods. Um, I studied with Robert Creeley at Buffalo and and other teachers uh, that were, uh, you know, very uh, helpful in in getting me uh, started. I actually taught quite a few online classes, really, for many years. It started, the first one, I think, was in the year 2000. Uh, Also, when I started to date Jules and uh, spend more time in New Mexico, you know, long flights between Rochester and Albuquerque. Um, I managed to get ways of um, spending a semester totally online, um, you know, half the year usually, 
and then increasing um, until I, I moved here in uh, the end of 2015. So I'm familiar with, with the online, although I love being, you know, in, in a situation with, with poets in a, in a physical way as well. I had the pleasure of meeting Robert Creeley, gosh, it's got to be 25 years ago now, uh, when I was a student at Ball State University, also majoring in English, and then went on to take a master's degree and taught in universities for a little over a decade. Poetry was always my first love, but it's not for everyone. But those who have stuck with it throughout their lives, who maybe even picked it up early on in their life, how do you think poets are innovating. Do you have any anecdotal evidence of what readership might be like for them these days? Because obviously they can't tour, for instance. It's actually probably easier in the past couple of weeks to, to find readers uh, because there were so many new Facebook groups springing up for people to share poetry. Um, as, as I'm sure you're aware, whenever there's a, a big crisis uh, people tend, even non-poets, often turn to poetry uh, for solace, for comfort. This happened after 9-11. It happened during the Vietnam War. It happened during the AIDS epidemic and so forth. Uh, many situations, uh, Hurricane Katrina, many situations where people turn to poetry there are a number of, of new journals that are just, you know, specializing in poems about our present crisis, the present pandemic. Uh, there were many groups. We started a small group of just about 20 of our friends where we're sharing, trying to share poems every day. Readership's actually, I'm sure, gone up because people have more time. Um, there's less time in traffic, at least. Right. And, and uh, so more time to write and to listen. And uh, so that's good. The problem is it's more difficult to sell your work, whether you're a visual artist, a poet, an actor or a musician or whatever. Yeah, absolutely, because a lot of times that's the hook for people to come out. You know, if there's a public appearance by an author who's going to do a book signing. You mentioned Walt Whitman, for instance, whom I, I think is a favored poet by many people, not only who listen to this show, but just across the world. What do you think Walt Whitman might write about? How would he deal with the coronavirus pandemic if he were living today? Yes, I have a bumper sticker, which is, you know, what would Walt do? <laughs> you know, and uh, so that that is always a good question. I, of course, the two kind of iconic poets, you know, from 19th century America, who are in so many ways opposites are Emily Dickinson and Walt Whitman. So we can imagine Emily being fairly content because she would continue doing exactly what she had been doing, right? Which is exactly sheltering in place. Yeah. Shelter in place. She is in some ways the patron saint of that. Um, and Walt, um, on the other hand, you know, um, 
you know, we, we think of him as the as the as the poet who loves to walk the streets of of, of New York and uh, and uh, to ride the the streetcars and and uh, so very much we think of him as the as a great public poet or poet uh, uh, who loves to be in and among the masses. Although it's worth remembering that he was. Uh, in Camden, for many years after suffering strokes, he was, um, uh, you know, fair, uh, pretty much housebound f- for a number of years. So he obviously, you know, so there was a sense in which he he was a stay-at-home poet for many years. His imagination didn't stay at home; his his body did, but his imagination could go out there and could wander the prairies and and sail the oceans and so forth. So, so. I think that's an inspiration too, just as Emily is an as an inspiration. Uh, she also was someone whose imagination was was not confined um, to to Amherst, um, not con- confined to her garden or her bedroom or whatever. Uh, just as Waltz uh, uh, wasn't. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I sort of wonder if Whitman might be out there sounding his barbaric yawp and refusing uh, to heed the orders of government officials. Just to mention, of course, he also had that volunteer experience, a very intense volunteer experience during the Civil War, going, you know, from ward to ward and, uh, you know, being very, you know, very um, cognizant of of medical conditions and so forth. And I'm sure he took whatever hygienic precautions they knew about or, you know, so I think there's there's that side of it, too. Because this is, of course, National Poetry Month, you happen to have a poem of your own that you could sort of take us out on? Like many of your listeners, I'm sure I've been writing frequently, addressing the current situation. And this was a poem called Social Distancing that uh, I wrote on 321, so just at the beginning of, of, the, uh, of the, the stay-at-home period. When my wife and I first started dating, it was long distance by phone, text, and Skype, often poems sent back and forth. Monthly opportunities for face-to-face and limb-to-limb connection enabled by hours spent in crowded airports, and suspended, strapped in above the clouds. Everything still, but for the soothing hum of jet engines. I wanted no earphones, no distractions, just a book of poems or a novel, and to look out at mountains of swirling meringue and faintly hear the music of the spheres. Now... We are together alone in our desert home with our cats. The world beyond we glimpse remotely through phone, text, TV, Zoom. While out the window, spring bunnies, nesting quail, all manner of birds at the feeders. The occasional bobcat lopes through, silent, deadly as a virus, magnificent. What a beautiful poem. And just as you were reading it there with that e-notification that popped up, I think that was a beautiful kind of 
coincidence in your own poem that you're getting to. <laughs> yeah, it's this precarious balance that you know that we have with uh, the electronic assistance, right? Well, John Roach, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us for a little bit during this National Poetry Month. And uh, we hope everything with you and Jules Nyquist goes well and that Poetry Playhouse will be back live, if you will, sometime in the very near future. Thanks so much, John. Thank you so much, Tom. My pleasure. You can find out more about John Roach on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. If you're feeling a little too distant from your community, the KJZZ mobile app is a great way to stay connected. Stream the station, read the latest Arizona news, or browse for a podcast. Let us help you stay connected on the KJZZ mobile app. It's free in Google Play and the App Store. KJZZ Spot 127 News Media Center is a qualifying charitable tax organization, which means that your contribution is eligible for a dollar-for-dollar credit on your Arizona taxes. Visit taxcredit.spot127.org today and support our award-winning students. Your mornings can define the rest of your entire day. Find the $5 you forgot about in your pocket, that might be a good day. Get stuck in a traffic mess on the 51, probably going to be a bad one. But when you begin your day with Morning Edition, you start fully awake with the latest and most important news to prepare you for whatever comes next. Take control of your day and listen to Morning Edition from 5 until 9 on KJZZ 91.5. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Nina Elenia is an actress and burgeoning poet. While she got her start doing theater in high school, she's relatively new to poetry. And it's fun to talk with people who are just beginning that particular writing journey. And that's one of the missions of this particular program that focuses on the literary arts in Arizona and the region. It's not just about big-name celebrities that come through town on a book signing. It's about real people. I began my Skype discussion with Nina by asking her about her Arizona roots. I was born and raised in Mesa, Arizona, so I'm used to the heat. I'm used to the cactuses. I'm used to everything. So I'm homegrown. I know everything about Arizona there is to know. So I'm not really an outsider. It's kind of funny, you know, meeting other people who moved to Arizona, just their whole surprise about the heat, surprise how everything is different from <laughs> where they came from. It's like, no, this is a regular, typical state. I mean, I don't know what you are about, but this is just normal for me. So this is my home, really. Yeah, for me, I came here from the island of Guam, actually. So really? it was a transformation in terms of heat and humidity to dealing with a, a dry heat. It did take me a little bit of time to get used to that and, and just, you know, <laughs> staying hydrated. That was difficult for me to, I don't know, get in my brain for some reason. So I was used to the heat, but it's funny when I travel back to more humid climates now, I find that I really prefer the climate here in Arizona, specifically you know, in this region. True. I remember I took a trip to Florida a couple summers ago and the humidity threw me off. I just could not handle it. I'm like, what is all of this? I feel very moist all the time like what is going on right. so 
Dry heat is definitely my go-to, honestly. Being on Guam, you know, you jump out of the shower, you, you towel off, and by the time you get into your car, you're already sweating. <laughs> exactly, so yeah. You probably experience some of the same thing. The reason we're talking to you is, you know, for multiple reasons. I've been talking to a lot of people around the Valley about how they're dealing with these particular times. This being National Poetry Month, we want to feature folks who are really electrified by poetry. And I guess maybe we just start there and... What kind of moves you to write poetry? What is it about it that you like? You know, that's a really good question. And to try to pinpoint one specific thing is kind of hard. But I mean, with the poems that I have written so far, it's really just a mood thing. Like A lot of times I might have something that's on my mind, whether it relates to school, work, family, or any other personal issues. If it's something that keeps like haunting me, uh, keeping me up at night, I just tend to get a piece of paper and pencil or pen and just jot my thoughts down. And then from that kind of journaling aspect, I start to kind of, you know, maybe develop a bit of a rhythm to it and then putting thoughts together, putting ideas and stringing them along. And then I end up having a poem and I wasn't really trying to write intentionally, but it's just one of those, I feel kind of moved to do it. So it's really being in the mood, having something that's kind of on my mind that I have to get out and it's really therapeutic for me to do that, you know? So a lot of it is just an emotional thing for me. Have you been a writer for a long time? Was this something that you started when you were a young child, for instance? In a way, yeah, because I went to an elementary school that was really big on literacy, reading and writing. And so from there, having that kind of drilled into me in a way where you would have like an idea or a prompt that was given to you and you just go from there. So I've been writing since I was around 11 years old, but it hasn't been until recently that I started to kind of take it a little bit more seriously. So I would say really the last five years, I've kind of been trying to develop my writing aesthetic and my technique, but it's been something that's been with me really my whole life. You know, a lot of people do journal, as you mentioned. They keep not necessarily a daily log of things, but from time to time they'll journal. They might not necessarily turn that into poetry, of course, uh, or turn it into anything that they intend to put out to the world. So I want to kind of talk about your writing process a little bit. How do you decide to go from something that you just sort of jotted thoughts down? I know you mentioned emotions and things like that, but putting it out there for public consumption is a further step. That's definitely a big, bold move to put it out there like that. But to even start writing initially, it's like from the journaling aspect, having some emotional pull toward a specific topic or an issue I'm dealing with. And then to, it really, it's kind of hard to explain because a lot of times I meet other people who are writers or they dabble in writing too. And just kind of having conversations with them from time to time, it kind of inspires you to write something of your own and you know, I, I can't even give a real straight answer, honestly, because it's just one of those things you just do. And then once you realize you've done it, you look back and you're like, oh, shoot, I've actually written something and I've taken the crazier step and actually shared it with the world. So it, it's hard, honestly. The process is just right. And then if I like it, I put it out and then whatever happens, happens. And so far, I've kind of gotten a lot of good reviews from what I've written. So it's been interesting, honestly. You are used to sharing yourself with audiences because you're also an actress, and that's yeah. sort of how I discovered you, just seeing some stuff through social media and other friends that we might be connected to. And so I wondered, does that enter into your creative process, sort of like you hear lines kind of 
in your mind? Yeah, for sure. With acting, that's very, um, you kind of have to be a bit of an extrovert to do that. But personally, I consider myself to be more of an introvert. So to do that in itself, that's also pretty bold too. But with being a creative individual, everything kind of ties in together. Like when you are doing a play, for example, you have the script, which is just written words. And so from there, you have an appreciation for the playwright, what they're saying, the characters that they have created for you. And ultimately, the role that you get, you tend to build up a bit of a, a familiarity with them. And with poetry, it's like you might write something down that it means something specific to you, but another person might read it and it means something else completely different to them. So they go together and um, with being a performer, being an actor, you're kind of used to being on the stage, you're used to being in front of the camera and just kind of having this exposed um, aspect. But with writing specifically, you are exposing yourself. When I'm acting, I'm playing a character, I can kind of hide between their um, quirks, their motivations. But when I'm writing my poetry or I'm sharing it with somebody, it's just me. I don't have any way to hide. I'm just being very vulnerable. So they go together, but they're very different at the same time. Nina, you have a poem that we wanted you to share with folks, but truth be told, it's a little bit long for this particular format. So I wondered if you wouldn't mind just reading the introduction and a couple of other stanzas, and then we could talk about it after that. This poem I wrote a couple years ago is called A Fella from Athens. And just a kind of a bit of a backstory, it's just, um, I was in a relationship with somebody for a brief moment in time, and um, I would definitely consider that my first love. But um, during that time we were together, it was just electric. It was like, he's not somebody I would have thought I would have been in a relationship with. So <laughs> Why not? when we were kind of, you know, it's one of those, like when love strikes, it just kind of takes over sure. really. So, and this is what I was talking about earlier, about having that deep emotional draw to something that this person was on my mind. So I just felt the need to kind of jot down a couple points and then a couple points became an entire poem. So I'm going to go ahead and read for you. And this is called have, A Fella from Athens. I have always been the girl that no one wanted. The girl who was literally the butt of every joke. The poster child for humiliation. The go-to gal for ridicule and disrespect. The girl with the funny sounding name that everybody enjoyed mispronouncing. Too tall, too chubby, too quiet, too me. Overlooked, never noticed, ignored. I have fond memories of being asked to middle school dances as an April Fool's gag. And there was that one time my ex only dated me on a dare in the expectation that I would put out. Then I met you. Let me set the record straight. I never intended to fall for you. I fell so hard that I got bruises from your affections, splinters from your sharp, witty humor, fractures from your firm embrace, involuntary blushing due to your excessive compliments that I always internalize as flaws, blinded by your pearly white smile, intoxicated from dark chocolate hue, and that's that. <laughs> wow. I really get the interplay between your introversion and extroversion, to be honest, in that poem. I feel like this was a very difficult poem for you to write coming from a place of introversion. It was, it was, because it took me, I want to say a couple of months to write, because again, these are all just a string of thoughts that I kind of just had laying around that 
something inside me just kind of decided to put it together and make it more rhythmic. And um, when I wrote this poem initially, I did share it with the person I was in a relationship with. And so it was hard to even open up to him in that way too. So being introverted and then also following an extroverted career, it's, it's hard, but it's an interesting kind of life to live, honestly. I mean, I can personally identify with that myself. I was a child of a parent who was very much in the public eye, first of all, in broadcasting. And then when my father left broadcasting, he became a United Methodist minister. And, wow. um, you know, it was like <laughs> growing up in cities and everybody knowing that last name simply because your dad was in television news or on radio news. And then, you know, moving into a totally different sphere where it's like, oh, you're the preacher's kid. You know, you just used the S word. Little things like that. And then here I am so many years later talking to you over a microphone for a podcast. But I, I, I can deeply identify with that sense of balancing introversion and extroversion. How are you and your friends coping without sort of brick and mortar performance venues to perform at these days? For a lot of the actors, all of our shows have been canceled until this virus clears up. And so a lot of us who kind of feed off of being in a theatrical space and being able to express ourselves in ways that we probably couldn't do in our regular day-to-day lives, it's been tough. It's like having something that you have co- you've been using as a crutch for years being taken away from you. And it's kind of hard to adjust, but... A lot of us have been sharing monologues through social media, like doing monologues, sharing them, posting it on our YouTube channels and trying to keep that spirit alive. But it's not the same as being in a theatrical space. It's been hard, but at the same time, it's been a necessary resting period for me because trying to balance writing, acting, my personal life, it's kind of hard to take care of myself the way I need to. So getting rest, eating well, trying to just take it one day at a time and not feel so rushed and have that need to get out and do something. It's been really therapeutic and healing for a lot of us, but I miss it. You know, (laughs) I want to leave my house. I'm tired of this, (laughs) but it's been good. But I'm like, all right, let's do something again, please. Obviously, when you're used to performing live, you sort of draw strength from an audience. But it also sounds to me like this moment is teaching you not only as a poet, but as a person, hey, we do need to draw back. We do need to reflect. We do need to take time to take care of ourselves. Yeah, because when you're trying to make this your career, not just something you do on the side, you're constantly running around trying to go to auditions, going to screenings or going to other shows. And it's taxing after a while because you're just running. It's a hustle and bustle kind of a thing. But You know, you don't get a lot of sleep because when I'm doing a play, for example, it's several hours of rehearsals each night. And I may not get home until after 11 o'clock, only to get up early in the morning at, say, 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. just to kind of do whatever I have to do and, and then repeat the same process. And you're not getting the necessary rest, like really resting and not feeling that need to get up early and then run around again. So it's good in a way. It's kind of hard to say that, but it's necessary. It's really a big kick in the ass. Well, Nina, Elenia, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and allowing us some time into that rat race that you're still living at this point. Thank you so much, Nina. Yes, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You can find out more about Nina Elenia on our website 
at word.kjzz.org. And that'll do it for this episode. We'll be back soon with another installment that focuses on poetry this month. In the meantime, you can send us a message via email. We'd love to read your recommendations for future guests or even something you liked about this particular episode. There's an email link on our website. I'm Tom Maxidon. Stay well, and thanks for listening. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word from the KJZZ Studios in Tempe, Arizona. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org.